Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You should either use a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, NHK World Radio Japan, France 24, and Radio Havana, Cuba. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Extreme monsoon rains have left a third of Pakistan underwater. 300,000 homes have been destroyed and it may take five years to rebuild. The Foreign Minister of Pakistan and UN Secretary General both attribute the disaster to climate change. Sandrine Dixon de Cleve, the co-president of the Club of Rome, says the floods are proof that immediate action to curb climate change is essential, but also points out numerous other droughts, heat waves, and fires as further evidence and that the most vulnerable people end up suffering the most because of global inequality and poverty. She says that we are aware of the tools to reverse the cause, but we need to apply them. A U.S. solar panel manufacturer plans to invest $1 billion to boost production and build a new factory in the U.S. The Amazon rainforest is burning at the highest rate in 10 years. The U.S. Navy sailed two warships through the Taiwan Strait, and the governor of Arizona visited the island, further irritating China. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Well, Pakistan's climate minister has told DW that much of her country looks like a small ocean. Over 1,000 people have been killed by weeks of devastating flooding, and an estimated 300 thousand homes have been destroyed. The latest floods are hitting areas in the northwest. Further south, Baluchistan and Sindh provinces are taking the brunt of the extreme weather. The flooding has knocked out transport and communications and a state of emergency is in force. Well, with millions left homeless, the Prime Minister is appealing to the world for help. Pakistan's planning minister says it might take five years to rebuild and recover from losses caused by unprecedented monsoon flooding this year. Authorities say the catastrophe is a result of climate change caused by the burning of fossil fuels. International aid has begun to arrive, but many say they've lost everything. As the rains finally ease, the scale of the catastrophe becomes clear. The worst flooding in Pakistan's history has left more than one-third of the country underwater. Satellite images reveal the sheer extent of the damage, which Pakistan's foreign minister has blamed on climate change. I want to emphasize here that the scale and magnitude of the current floods is unprecedented, whereby the country received rainfall equivalent to three times the national 
national 30-year average. This is a grave manifestation of climate change-induced disaster. The devastating floods have forced more than half a million people to flee to drier ground. Many now shelter in makeshift camps, where supplies of food, medicine and clean water are running dangerously low. The UN Secretary-General appealed to the international community for help, warning that the climate-induced crisis poses a global challenge. Pakistan is awash in suffering. The Pakistani people are facing a monsoon on steroids, the relentless impact of epochal levels of rain and flooding. Let's stop sleepwalking towards the destruction of our planet by climate change. Today, it is Pakistan. Tomorrow, it could be your country. The UN has called for $160 million in international aid to help those most in need. But the Pakistani government says it will need more than $10 billion to recover. And with more rain predicted in the coming weeks, that number is likely to rise. And we can speak now to Sandrine dixon Declev. She's the co-president of the Club of Rome, which is an organization working to address uh, pressing global issues. Welcome to DW. Should the floods in Pakistan be recognized by world leaders as proof, finally, that more immediate action is needed on climate change? Absolutely. But I would also say that the droughts across Europe, the heat waves that we've been seeing, the fires burning, I mean, my heart goes out to the Pakistani people. But we've had floods in Germany and also in Belgium last year, where many actually of our uh, experts from the South have been supporting us in trying to address some of these issues. The problem with all of these issues is that it's the world's most vulnerable that suffers the most, whether it is in the countries in the West, where it is often in those populations that are already the most vulnerable within those economies. So it is absolutely clear that this is just one of another indication that we must start to address not only climate change, but poverty and inequality at the same time. You just presented a new report warning about rising global inequality and its uh, impact on the climate. Can you tell us more about that, please? Yes, this book, which we are here today launching, is called Earth for All, Survival Guide for Humanity. And it very much looks at both the system dynamic modeling that we've been doing with the interrelationships between inequality, poverty, and clearly the climate change that we are seeing. What we're trying to do in that book is bring forward clear recommendations for example, of our turnaround around food is to addressing food stability through a food stability board or risk management, addressing also the debt crisis by working with governments to actually reintegrate and shift that debt, in fact, even eliminate in some cases or having special drawing rights. So what this book actually does is look at the clear interrelationships of the crises, both social and environmental that we have, and what are some of the solutions that we have today for governments to deal with the current crises and plan for future resilience. Now, your report does suggest that we can end global extreme poverty and reach net zero emissions by 2050. Is this realistic? 
Absolutely. In fact, we show that 2 to 4 percent annual GDP figures are what we're asking to redistribute. We also very clearly indicate that we have to work with the world's wealthiest and start to place a very clear tax on the wealthiest. Uh, the 10 percent of those revenues really need to, to shift, and actually 10 percent of the wealthiest need to ensure that they're only taking 40 percent of our national incomes. The, the fact is that we can do this. We already have most of the solutions in the current toolbox, whether it be tripling investments in, renew in renewables, excuse me, ensuring that we move towards energy efficiency measures, moving towards regenerative agriculture and local production for local consumption. So all of those recommendations are in there, shifting also from growth and GDP uh, economic indicators towards well-being indicators that take into consideration social well-being as well as environmental well-being. Sandrine Dixon-Diclev, co-president of the Club of Rome. Thanks so much for speaking with us. U.S. solar panel manufacturer First Solar is planning to invest over a billion dollars to boost production and build a new factory in the U.S. It's among the first major corporate investments announced after the signing of a new U.S. law that incentivizes certain renewable energy investments. Brazil's Amazon rainforest is experiencing the worst August forest fires in over a decade. New government data shows the number of fire alerts is higher than in 2019, which saw devastating blazes that shocked the world. Experts blame the Brazilian right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro, for rolling back environmental protections of the Amazon forest. The U.S. Navy says two of its warships have sailed through the Taiwan Strait in the first such show of force since a recent escalation of tensions between China and U.S.-backed Taiwan. The self-ruled island is under constant threat from mainland China, which says it could use military action to bring Taiwan under its control. The governor of the U.S. state of Arizona has traveled to Taiwan for talks on economic cooperation in high-tech sectors. Doug Ducey's visit to Taipei is the latest in a string of visits by U.S. politicians that have angered China. Beijing claims Taiwan as part of its own territory and says the visits encourage Taiwanese pro-independence forces. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Next, NHK World Radio Japan. The Japanese government is investigating spiritual sales by the religious group formerly known as the Unification Church, sometimes referred to as the Moonies, which was a factor in the assassination of ex-Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Many people in Japan are mourning the death of Gorbachev. The Japanese Defense Ministry is requesting a record high budget to drastically enhance its weapons, including attack drones and missiles to add counter-strike capabilities. The G20 group met in Bali to discuss the climate crisis but failed to even produce a joint communique. In Ukraine, the International Atomic Energy Agency inspection of the nuclear power plant seized by Russian troops is beginning at my press time. NHK Japan. Japan's Consumer Affairs Agency has launched an expert panel to deal with a dubious marketing practice known as spiritual sales. 
Last month's fatal shooting of former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo has put attention on a controversial religious group formerly known as the Unification Church. Lawyers, professors, and other consumer affairs experts gathered online for the panel's first meeting on Monday. We would like to look back on how the Consumer Affairs Agency has dealt with spiritual business practices. I hope each ministry and agency will draw up discussions at this meeting to take whatever measures they can. The suspect in Abe's shooting has told police he believed the former leader had links to the Unification Church. The gunman says his mother donated about $1 million to the organization, pushing his family into bankruptcy. Consumer affairs officials across the country say their offices have received around 1,200 complaints annually in recent years about spiritual sales and similar techniques. The number of such consultations surged after Abe's death. The weekly panel meeting will be open to the public online. Minister Kono says he wants to quickly come up with new measures to help those in need. People in Japan are mourning a man who helped walk the world back from the brink of nuclear war. Mikhail Gorbachev was the last Soviet leader. He died on Tuesday at the age of 91. Gorbachev negotiated a landmark nuclear arms agreement with the U.S. and helped to declare an end to the Cold War. Gorbachev was also the first Soviet leader to visit Japan, visiting Nagasaki to honor victims of the U.S. atomic bombing. Kawa no Koichi was among the survivors who greeted him. I sincerely hope that Mr. Gorbachev's desire to create a world without war will live on. Japan's defense ministry is on track to request a record high budget for the next fiscal year. It would drastically enhance the country's defense capabilities at a time when regional tensions are high. Top officials approved the roughly 5.6 trillion yen ask. That's about $40 billion. The ministry would use the cash infusion to purchase new standoff missiles capable of long-range attacks. They include an improved version of the Ground Self-Defense Force's ground-to-ship missile, as well as high-speed glide bombs to defend remote islands. The ministry also wants to speed up the acquisition of unmanned aircraft. It plans to deploy drones that can be used not only for surveillance, but also to launch an attack. The budget request also includes a replacement for the scrapped plan to deploy the land-based Aegis Ashore system. The ministry says it will construct vessels equipped with the Aegis missile defense system. The vessels will have the capability to respond to hypersonic glide weapons, which are reportedly more difficult to intercept. The budget would fuel a plan to bolster defense within five years that could add counter-strike capabilities. That's the ability to hit foreign bases and other targets in response to missile attacks. A group of 20 meeting on the environment and climate change has failed to produce a joint communique by the end of the talks. The G20 officials were reportedly unable to agree on the wording used on climate targets and the war in Ukraine. 
the ministers met in Bali, Indonesia, to discuss issues that included extreme weather and disasters blamed on climate change and plastic waste in the oceans. Western countries also tried to include words of condemnation over the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russia opposed the move. The ministers failed to reach an agreement to advance even one step on the environmental issues confronting the international community. In that sense, I think it's a very regrettable result. Professor Takamura says she hopes discussions will move forward at the COP27 UN Climate Conference to be held in Egypt in November. We begin in Ukraine, where the long-awaited inspection of Europe's largest nuclear facility is expected to start. A team from the International Atomic Energy Agency is now in Zaporizhia. The nearby plant is under Russian control, and fighting has raised fears of a possible nuclear disaster. Experts, led by Rafael Grossi, arrived in the area on Wednesday. The IAEA chief says on top of checking on the condition of the facility and its workers, he hopes to establish an ongoing mission. Russia's representative to the IAEA says his country welcomes the inspection. Footage of the plan has captured evidence of damage. Ukraine has accused Russia of turning it into a military base, while Moscow has accused Ukrainian forces of launching attacks. Ukrainian troops have fired shells at the plant. Ukraine is staging provocations to block the IAEA's mission. The U.S. has called on all sides to ensure the safety of the plant and allow the IAEA team to do its job. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 7355 and 6165 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. On to France 24. Press reviews on the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, both from Western and Russian sources. Then an analysis of his unpopularity in Russia in the last decade. France 24. Well, Titika, Laurent is joining us now to uh, look through the newspapers. Going to start off uh, with the death, of course, of Russia's Mikhail Gorbachev. Tipti, obviously, um, that death covering all across the front pages around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Russian Soviet history, or rather the end of it, is really synonymous with Mikhail Gorbachev. And after his death at 91 years of age, he's really being remembered, at least in the Western press, as a man who helped bring about the end of communism in Russia. The British Daily, the Times of London, uh, remembering him as the USSR's last leader, noting that his reforms led to freedom and democracy in Eastern Europe, but also the fall of the Soviet Union. The Washington Post, meanwhile, calls him a product uh, of the Soviet regime. He played a complicated but unique role in world history. He was a member of the ruling elite who enjoyed its privileges and believed in its ideology, but he decided to destroy it anyway. For that, the world can be grateful, the Post says. 
some different uh, nuances in the Russian papers, perhaps? Yeah, Izvestia, the Russian daily, uh, calls him an important but controversial figure in Russian history. Uh, this article is really interesting. It really takes us, you know, through back into his whole life, really. Uh, he was a devoted husband. He met his wife, Raisa, in college. They were married for nearly 50 years before her death in 1999, which Izvestia this paper here calls a turning point in Gorbachev's life. He was a brilliant student, but he was quickly drawn to politics. Uh, and uh, he was a communist, I quote, who buried communism, or probably unwittingly. He was a leader of a great country, but uh, helplessly brought about its collapse or watched its collapse. For some, he did indeed contribute to that collapse. And to discuss his legacy in Russia, France 24's Nick Holdsworth joins me on the line now. Um, Gorbachev, hardly a popular figure in modern Russia, is he? In those elections of 1996, he got less than 1% of the vote. How do you explain his unpopularity in the last decade or so? Gorbachev was a, a complex character. And what we have to remember is that he was trying to shift the Soviet Union from this, this very stuck and archaic uh, economic model where people didn't really work properly, there was uh, no effective production, um, there was a lot of absenteeism, he brought in these uh, changes to um, restrict the sales of, of, of vodka and other strong spirits in order to try to address those issues. So, you know, he was trying to make the Soviet Union work and keep the Communist Party in power. And in effect, what he did, he unleashed powers and, and, and uh, actions that ran away from him. The Soviet Union collapsed and he got lumbered with the blame where, in fact, a lot of the extreme issues of, of poverty and lack of work and all those sort of issues in, in the early 90s were the result of neoliberal policies that were introduced by Yeltsin in association with the oligarchs, uh, strongly supported, I must say, by Western and American advisors at the time. So, in a way, Gorbachev got lumbered with this image as being the man who oversaw the collapse of the Soviet Union when a lot of the damage was actually done after he'd already left office. And um, there's been much debate, hasn't there, Nick, about what Gorbachev's relationship was like with Vladimir Putin. Um, how would you characterise it? Because at least at the beginning of Putin's tenure, Gorbachev publicly supported him. I think that Mikhail Gorbachev wanted to give the new president of chance. I mean, obviously, there'd been a couple of terms of Yeltsin after Gorbachev, and Gorbachev was no great friend of Yeltsin. Uh, he gave him the benefit of the doubt. He later changed his view, although he was always very circumspect. Now, and Putin has issued this uh, statement today. It's a very carefully worded message where he doesn't really um, criticise Gorbachev. He says he was a politician, a statesman, who made a huge impact on the course of global history. At the same time, the Kremlin hasn't confirmed whether there'll be a state funeral for Gorbachev, which would be unusual. And the Kremlin spokesman, uh, Dmitry Peskov, was uh, less guarded, saying that uh, Gorbachev had given an impetus to the end of the Cold War. He believed there'd be an eternal romantic period between the Soviet Union and the West. That didn't materialise. And the bloodlust of our opponents has shown itself, said Peskov. Thanks for your analysis, Nick Holdworth, for us there. Those press reviews and analysis were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website france24.com, as well as on a YouTube channel called France 24 English. 
If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show which I freely distribute to radio stations and the internet. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba. Colombian President Gustavo Petro attended the Andean Community Summit with Peru, Ecuador, and Bolivia, calling for the reintegration of Chile and Venezuela into the regional bloc. At the United Nations Security Council, Syria rejected the U.S. justification for its repeated attacks on Damascus and called for an end to its illegal presence on Syrian territory. The Chinese government called the U.S. looting of Syrian natural gas and oil terrible and accused them of depriving the Syrian people of the basic necessities of life. Radio Havana, Cuba. President of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, called on Monday for the reintegration of Chile and Venezuela into the Andean Presidential Council, the CAN, to form a united and powerful bloc. During his first international trip as president of that South American country, Petro arrived in Peru to attend the Andean Community Summit made up of Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, and Bolivia. The president announced on Monday, quote, We must be more powerful, gather more voices. The requests from Chile and Venezuela must be taken into account. We must go back to the first stage of the Andean community when they were part of this instrument, thus proposing the reintegration of Venezuela and Chile into the regional bloc, of which they were full members members in the past. Syria has rejected the United States' justifications for its repeated attacks on Damascus and described these as political insolence. In a recent session of the United Nations Security Council on the political and humanitarian situation in that Levantine nation, the Syrian permanent representative, Bassam al-Sabag, ridiculed Washington for describing its actions as a right of legitimate defense. The diplomat called for an end to the illegal foreign presence on Syrian territory, for the cessation of the repeated Israeli attacks, and the immediate and unconditional stop to the policies of economic terrorism and collective punishment imposed by the United States and the European Union. The Chinese government called the looting of Syria's natural resources by the United States terrible and accused Washington of seeking a color revolution in that Arab country. Quote, it is appalling to see the magnitude of the American looting in Syria. There is no greater injustice than the richest country in the world robbing one of the poorest, said the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian during a press conference this Tuesday. The Foreign Minister regretted that all this happened while Syria is still trying to get out of a crisis that has dragged on for more than a decade. Quote, Today, even today, U.S. troops continue to control Syria's oil, natural gas, and other state resources. They continue to occupy the main oil fields in Syria and have looted more than 80% of the country's oil production. They have smuggled and burned grain stocks from Syria, exacerbating the humanitarian crisis. Furthermore, the Chinese spokesman pointed out that the U.S. intervened in the Syrian crisis and its military operations have caused heavy civilian casualties 
penalties and incalculable economic losses. In this regard, he recalled that last week the U.S. Army carried out another round of airstrikes in eastern Syria and in flagrant violation of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of that Arab country. Zhao also repudiated the economic sanctions imposed by the United States on Syria, which have deprived the Syrian people of the basic necessities of life and blocked the country's economic development and reconstruction. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radio8c.cu, though the podcasts are not updated, though you can stream the daily show at their website at noon Pacific Daylight Saving Time in English. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6000, 6060, or 6165. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's out. Farpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.